Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And you won't have heard it because I'll have edited it out, but I completely fluffed the intro. And it, it turns out, PJ, that the the key the key uh, metric for whether I succeed or fail in doing the intro, it, it's the verb. It's like <laughs> it's a podcast in which X. You know, is it revisit? Is it explore? You know, that that's where I start getting confused. I mean, I I didn't realize you'd made a mistake, and then you said you'd messed it up, and I was like, did he? What did he do? And then when you said revisit, I went, oh, he said explore. The fool! Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and actually, on um, on the note of um, apologising, um, I've apologised off air. I should probably apologise on air to you, PJ. Uh, I'm very sorry for missing our recording session last week. Yes, we we had a recording session booked in to record the very episode <laughs> you're listening to right now, one week ago today, and... I was all set up. I'd read the issue. I'd plugged everything in. My laptop was on. The recording device was ready to go. And I sat there for half an hour before I finally went, I'm giving up on John now. <laughs> yeah, uh, PJ Blessing was, was, you know, kind of sitting alone in a dark room, you know, a single a single birthday cake. My, my wife had like... gone out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... I'm so sorry, PJ. I, I I can't even remember what I was doing. There was just stuff kind of going on, and I I just I had a new phone. You see, I had a new phone, PJ. That's really the problem here, and <laughs> I'm still getting my head around the calendar app. So, so yeah, I'm very sorry. I, I definitely remembered today. I'm here. I'm I'm I'm. This is real. This is this is and and, and it's going to be even better than it would have been if we had recorded it last week. So it's all fine. It all balances out. Everything is fine. I mean, uh, you know, the sun is shining. We've all, we've all had our coffee. Um, I was going to be bringing the coffee on air, but we've actually just been talking for about half an hour, kind of just, you know, kind of working out all that, you know, um, <laughs> unresolved anger following last <laughs> week. Um, I feel suitably chastised. Um, but yeah, we've, we've been talking uh, podcast hardware, um, you know, potential renovations to to our houses down the line if we had you know money and time mm-hmm. uh so yeah all the really we've got all the down-to-earth things out of the way so it's just nothing but superhero um awesomeness and 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 delights ahead of us we we did also start talking about how we're going to structure the podcast episodes for the rest of dc one million um 
and basically we're just going to have one episode for one story in the trade going forward but it did lead us onto a conversation i stopped because i realized <laughs> we should be recording this <laughs> yeah um yeah we, we, we it was quite a good conversation it, you know i was excited to, to hear where it would go and, and pj just killed it dead for you the listener so i hope you're grateful <laughs> yeah so we because the the graphic novel DC One Million is sort of structured. Today we're looking at a story from Detective Comics One Million, which I'm guessing was an issue that had another shorter backup story in it. Uh, I know Detective Comics. I wasn't reading it really at this point, but I know a couple of years' time it would still have two stories. So I'm wondering if that was still the case at this point. Um, but then everything after it is really too long because they're whole issues. Mostly you've got JLA One Million, the last two issues of DC One Million. A story from Superman the Man of Tomorrow 1 million, but that was a bigger comic anyway because it was released quarterly. Like, Do you remember in the 90s, you Marvel did them as Unlimited? So you had X-Men Unlimited and Spider-Man Unlimited, which were released every three months, but they had they were longer. They had more stories in them. I think it's interesting, though, because I think we've talked about it before, and I, I think this is a bit of a gap in my knowledge because I know that when I started collecting or even becoming aware of kind of like 90s comics, which was my my gateway uh it was all through the uk panini reprints yes so the, the uh, this has been a really interesting aspect of the podcast like just recording with you because you telling me about these things that, that were real kind of gaps in my knowledge um but yes yeah, so, so the unlimited stuff like was that technically it what in canon is the wrong yeah. word but did it fall within yeah. the release schedule of was, their regular series? It was weird, because they they were every three months, but it meant that the stories would usually be fairly disposable, and they weren't part... It was it was a standalone story, and if there was an ongoing story arc going through, say, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, and X-Men at the time... <clears throat> yeah. X-Men Unlimited wouldn't really touch on it. It would just be a standalone story with then a couple of backup strips in it as well. <clears throat> in But then very occasionally, it would dip in to the main storylines like um the onslaught saga the story of what happens to juggernaut after professor xavier reveals himself as onslaught and then juggernaut is trapped within the crystal the... of sitorak oh do you say sitorak interesting yes i do i've always said sitorak ah I'm Crimson. sure they said Sitarak on the X-Men 90s cartoon, so that's where I get it. Oh, and that that and that is canon, so... Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, that, the mainstream comics never really revealed what happened to him after that, but an issue of X-Men Unlimited does. So when Juggernaut Next shows up in the main series, it, it just... He's... You know, there's no explanation for it there. Same with Spider-Man Unlimited. That was around the time of the Clone Saga, and very few of the main stories in Spider-Man Unlimited tied in. But I do remember very occasionally the UK ones would suddenly go like, oh, we're reprinting this one story from Spider-Man Unlimited. <laughs> like, Yeah, they would do that occasionally. Like, if it, if it was between a couple of big storylines or it didn't quite sync up, they would just kind of, like, yeah. pack an episode with a, a bunch of, like, ephemera. Like, you know, here's a five-pager, here's a three-pager or something like that. Yeah, um, but but Superman the Man of Tomorrow was DC's version of that, um, in, is is what I recall. So it was a like a it would have several stories in it. It was a larger, more page count, but it also only came out quarterly. Um, so yeah, so the fact that the Superman book we get a story from in this trade is from Man of Tomorrow <laughs> rather than Action Comics or Superman or uh, so yeah. Here's so um. You've talked about this before, but 
around the time of um, you know the death of Superman, Superman, sorry, and the, and the reign of the Superman, hmm. how many Superman titles were DC putting out? Right. Time. So at that point, it was four because it was one a week. But Man of Tomorrow wasn't one of them. Um, it was Action Comics, uh, Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Superman: The Man of Steel. Because then you had in during Reign of the Superman, each of the four Imposter Supermen took a book, each, basically. So I want and- to say you had obviously it was Steel in Man of Steel. Action Comics was the Eradicator. Superman, I think, was the Cyborg Superman. And Adventures of Superman was Superboy. And then you also had Man of Tomorrow, which was this quarterly That was special. later. Because the, right. the first issue I got of Man of Tomorrow, and I, I can't remember which issue number it was, but it was quite low. I want to say maybe six or seven was part of the Day of Judgment crossover. So Man of Tomorrow started quite a long time, I think, or two or three years, I think, after the return of Superman. Um, And I don't know if they cancelled one of the Superman books to make room for it. I want to say they did, because I got a bit confused with the numbering of them, because I think there were also some title changes for a couple of them. But, um, yeah. And how many Batman titles were there, were being published simultaneously? Uh... Well, I think, again, it was four, I think, you had... Because, again, if you look at Nightfall, that ran through Detective Comics, Batman, uh, Batman Shadow of the Bat, and... Was there a fourth? I can't remember. I'm sure there was a fourth Batman title. And and then also this kind of the quarterly uh, special as well. Similar thing. I can't remember if Batman had one, to be honest. Uh, the only reason I know about the Superman one is because it was linked into a lot of crossovers. Right. It's like the dump, not dumping ground is maybe a little cruel, but it's like, where would you, you, if you've got the space of like having five separate titles, yeah, you'd probably, if you have to do an obligatory crossover tie-in, you'd probably stick it there. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong about, and maybe they counted like Robin as the fourth Batman book. I don't know. Where do you, where do you sit on the idea of a a character or a team or a uh, a leading recognizable uh title having multiple simultaneous books cuz you couldn't do it for every hero but obviously no. like in its heyday superman batman makes sense and spider-man x-men makes sense like some of the most recognizable heroes on the planet well- at the time even in the 90s, the X-Men only had two. They only had Uncanny and X-Men up until the point where they Morrison relaunches X-Men as new X-Men, Uncanny continues, and then they bring in Extreme X-Men. That's the first time you had more than two X-Men books. Obviously, you had X-Factor, X-Force, and things like that, but they were dealing with other characters. The thing you so had, I think it was a bit different. Then, of course, you got like um, Astonishing X-Men, which became like a... If I, I don't know if it was ever intended this way, but became like a way of showcasing kind of limited series by a particular creator. Well, much later on it did. I believe the first time they did Astonishing X-Men was during the, it was a three-part miniseries that led in to The Twelve, 
storyline. Oh, wow. Gosh, that's a where from the past. the X-Men are disbanded and then like the, was it the Nanite kids or something need help and they come to the X-Mansion and the only people there are Scott, Jean and Archangel. So Cyclops basically says, we're the X-Men. And then they also recruit Cable, Wolverine and X-Man and oh, they spend three issues fighting God. the new death. The Horseman of Apocalypse, who is then revealed to be Wolverine, and the Wolverine they're fighting alongside is a Skrull imposter. So it all got very strange. <laughs> but I believe that everybody. was the first astonishing X-Men um, that wasn't an Age of Apocalypse book. I remember that. God, I do remember that story, and I always felt this is a, this is a conversation for a completely different podcast. But like Archangel, I was a bit like kind of very out of place on that team. Yeah, it was weird because the Scott and Jean, Cable and X-Men are their kids, and I guess Wolverine's kind of a godfather or an avuncular uncle to them. And then Archangel's there. <laughs> I know, and you feel a little sorry, because it's like, I know the X-Men has always had a, a real uh, lean towards telepaths, um, but you've basically got like three Omega-level, or close to Omega-level telepaths on your team. You've got Cyclops, you've got Wolverine, who's basically the team mascot and always has to be there. And then you've got Archangel, who can fly. Actually, I, I think he was probably on there because they were fighting death, and he used mm. to be death. So that's probably oh, why they of put course. him in the book. Yeah. Um, although I remember, because that was when Alan Davis was sort of running the X-Books, and um, I actually really enjoyed his run, I thought, because he, he wrote them both, and he did, he drew one of them too. And I, I love his art, and I think he's a really good writer as well. Uh, so I think he just had an affinity for Warren Worthington third. Yeah, no, no, I can, I can see that. But no, PJ, I, I, sorry, I, I think I kind of hijacked the conversation, but I don't think I ever really got your answer. But what, what are your kind of views on, on a, a, a series having? I, I think it depends titles? how it's done. Um, I think the way the Superman books worked in the '90s, where you basically had to buy all four to get the full story, I'm not keen on because if you can only afford one Superman book a month, you're missing out. More recently, I feel like they have gone back to, they don't really do four books. For a character anymore i think superman at the moment has two and you sort of get a complete story if you're only buying one of those books until it's crossover time in the year and and i'm all right with that i think that's fine same with spider-man i think in like the the noughties had three books because he had amazing uh, friendly neighborhood and they relaunched sensational as well at the same time <laughs> i and they were all different storylines running through them, though. You didn't have to buy all yeah, three books. But you see, that's a thing that... And maybe, I, maybe I'm approaching it the wrong way, but like, I, I have to assume that this comes purely from a, an editorial slash marketing kind of perspective, mm. where it's kind of like, these characters are so big. I mean, Superman and Batman, kind of timeless, and also it was the 90s, so you're off the tail end of the Batman movies. Uh, Spider-Man... And X Men both had wildly popular cartoons. Mm -hmm. They're Marvel's most recognizable heroes at the time. So you're kind of like, okay, one title a month isn't enough to capitalize on it, you know. And 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 I'm like, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a dirty word. I'm just saying that like, I think it was maybe a, a business decision more than a creative one. But then the creativity rushes in to kind of fill that space. Yeah. I just, I think the bit that always kind of strained credibility for me is how busy is Peter Parker's life? Yes. 
if like in one series in say um <laughs> wonderful spider-man uh you know he's fighting like um there's like a 14 issue arc where he's battling the kingpin and then in like um charming spider-man uh there's an eight issue arc where he's fighting rose and delilah or something like that and i'm like are these parallel universes how is he balancing everything i i don't mind that so much because obviously you've a six-part story in an issue of in, in six issues of spider-man can take place in an afternoon and it's yeah. six months for us so i don't mind that so much because with the marvel sliding time scale and how all that works when it does get confusing is when you're trying to when you've got like a big event happening at the same time and maybe the story isn't tying into the event but then Spider-Man's appearing in the event as well and everywhere else and guest starring in loads of books and things that's when it gets confusing and I think that's where DC sort of fell down for me around Infinite Crisis nothing made sense everyone was everywhere all the time literally every character was in every book all the time for about a year yeah. I was like, what is happening yeah that was a weird period I think and I guess it's also got to be weird when a big character change comes along. I'm thinking of like electric, electric Superman. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one thing to have a knock-on effect for like the kind of core Superman title if there was such a thing. But yeah, that's gonna trickle down across multiple creative teams, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not really, I'm not really keeping up with with DC or Marvel these days. But I know, for example, Spider Man what they've done is they've just released Amazing Spider-Man fortnightly or something instead of having yeah. multiple Spider-Man books. So it's all the same writer, rotating artists, because that's a punishing schedule, but same writer. Uh, Superman, I know, certainly when I was reading the book a year and a half ago or so, it was different artists on the books, but the same writer on both Superman books. So, you know, they could tie it together how they wanted to link them in where they wanted, but they did sort of keep them as separate stories mostly. So, yeah, I don't know. It's Do, do you feel... Because um, if you've got a, a team like the X-Men uh, with a cast of thousands... Um, Legends of the Dark Knight, that was the fourth Batman book. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Okay, wow. Callback. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad you got that out of your head. That probably would have damaged you in the long run. Um, but no, so so like, uh, if you've got a big team like the X-Men and mm. lots of fan favorite characters, I can see it working well there where you're like, well, look, there's so many bloody X-Men. We can have two titles or maybe even three titles that are, fo- you know, are focusing on different groups of characters, you know, and I think that kind of works. Um was there a particular design philosophy to say the many Superman titles where it was like is the is you know the main is Superman just going to be about adventure is like I can't remember all the titles PJ you'll have to save me here but like <laughs> is Superman like man of tomorrow about more sci-fi things or, or was it not quite that kind of clear cut i think that was the idea when they started i can't remember what the breakdown was with the superman books um but like the batman books detective comics was supposed to be adventures where batman would be doing detective stuff batman was the more action book uh shadow of the bat was a book where batman maybe took a back seat to other characters 
and Legends of the Dark Knight was was telling stories from like earlier in Batman's history when they started. I right. know that in the Spider-Man books in the 90s you had Amazing Spider-Man that was like the mainstream supposed to be the Spider-Man book. You had Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man which focused more on Peter Parker's life and and his life behind the mask. Web of Spider-Man was supposed to be the darker, grittier Spider-Man book. And then Spider-Man was the Todd McFarlane book. <laughs> that's that's the design philosophy. Yes, yeah. Todd McFarlane. It was like an um, artist. It then became like an artist showcase. I see, yeah, Eric Larson no, I, took I it see. over when McFarlane left. And well, actually, this kind of segues quite nicely then, because my the weird thing is now is that like uh, I I collected um, Spider Man for a while when I was when I was younger, but it was the again it was the UK collector's edition. <laughs> the the panini one and i can't remember what they called it the astonishing it, it, spider-man there we, there you go good work pj yeah they just pick a, a new prefix yeah. basically uh flick open the dictionary uh so yeah astonishing spider-man and that has like with all the panini titles three issues three uh standalone american issues combined into one thicker monthly book for a uk audience and um uh they the the editorial team i always felt did a did a good job of kind of selecting and choosing content to tell you a narrative. Yes, because uh, they were always a few years behind the American releases. Yeah, they they got closer as time went on to the point where these days those books are around. I think they print like four comics a month now, and they're bigger. They're like hundred page books, and but they wow. cost about five pounds now. Um, but. Yeah, I think these days they're only three or four months behind America. But certainly when Astonishing Spider-Man started, when I was buying it, it was two or three years behind. And it's interesting because, you know, as a as a kid, I would never have realized that there were potentially three or four individual Spider-Man titles. But it, it was like having, in hindsight, it's kind of like having a friend guide you through the process mm. because particularly when you know you're a teenager you've got no idea what's going on and particularly when american comics were a little harder to come by you wouldn't know how to keep track of a storyline so i always felt the editors did an all right job of um weaving one single narrative into this collected edition yeah um now maybe there was a ton of stuff i just missed out on you know st- stuff i never even knew existed because we didn't include it but i enjoyed what they did do you see where I'm going with this, PJ? Yes, I am. <laughs> right, because similar editorial decisions were made in collecting the trade paperback of DC One Million, <laughs> and I don't know if it's necessarily the fault of the editorial team that I don't think it weaves as coherent a narrative here's the point that i was going to make to start all of this that we then got really sidetracked (laughs) for i first time i read dc 1 million i got it out of the library back home in uh dorking went back when i was living there late 90s and i read it and i enjoyed it and then i took it back to the library and i don't think i bought my own copy for another few years so that was the only time i'd read it at that point i could vaguely remember the details of the four DC 1 million issues and sort of JLA 1 million I almost I think I remembered as part of that I mm. could not remember 
any of the tie-in stuff that they reprinted at all, with the exception of Resurrection Man 1 million. For some reason, that's stuck in my head. Which leads me to think that might be the best one. We haven't got to it yet, but... Yes, I'm kind of... Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that, what I can recall. And, of mm. course, when we revisit it, I think we can see that, you know, we, we can make another judgment call. But, yeah, I think it's a more cohesive story, like yeah. individual story in its own right. Yeah, um, but that was the only one I really remembered when I came back to revisit it. And even on this revisit, I'd forgotten they printed this detective comic story we're looking at today. It's very weird. Now, obviously, we're about to dive into it. But I we talked in the previous issue about, like, episode, how um, there were so many tie-in issues. Like, it kind of affected every everything that DC was publishing hmm. at the time. And I, I, I would, I would put money on the fact that not all of them directly contribute to the central narrative. Young Justice definitely doesn't. However, I'm, I constantly have the impression in while revisiting DC One Million that there's always something happening off page, yeah, which is somehow important to the main story. And well, I don't know what that is, and I still ultimately understand everything that's happening. But it's like a it's like a book that seems to thrive entirely on inferring that there's something going on elsewhere. We're gonna get to that this episode a little bit, I think, because the detective comic story, it's not very long. It's eighteen pages, I think. So again, I assume there was another story in that issue that is not reprinted here. But then between Detective Comics and JLA 1 million in this book, there's another recap page which says, oh, here's a lot of stuff that happened in the tie-ins that you didn't know about. And I'm going to have things to say when we get to that page. Uh, <clears throat> wonderful. Um, yes, we, we should probably just uh, go for it then because um, I, yeah, I have a vague memory, PJ, and I don't know if you can confirm or deny this, but of all the various tie-ins... Uh, 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 and simultaneous one million titles that were happening. One of those is Kronos One Million. Okay. Uh, now, a character, I confess, I don't know a massive amount about other than he is a time traveler in the DC universe. And I could be going mad, and I know we'll cover it in time, but I swear there is a throwaway line in a later issue of this book where someone references Kronos. And I have no desire to track down every DC no. 1 million tie-in, but I'm almost wondering whether I should try and read Kronos 1 million in case there's something relevant there. Ooh, yeah, you have some homework. I'm usually the yeah. one that goes off to read the extra stuff, but no, you do it this time. Maybe I'll, I'll actually do that this time. And, may, and it's like, I'm almost reluctant to commit because I'm a coward, because I kind of feel that, like, did I dream that one throwaway line? Because I can't remember who said it or where it pops up. But given that Morrison plotted every individual tie-in issue, with the exception of Hitman, um, I wonder if there's something there which might help or contribute to the story in some way. I don't know. I am I looking up Kronos 1 million. This is where you're going to say, like, there was no Kronos 1 Kronos million. Kronos 1 million on the DC database. Okay, it does exist. I might have to go read the damn thing. It's probably on Comixology. I imagine all of the uh, one million tie-ins are on there. It's probably on Comixology. I've just anyway. read the synopsis, so um, 
you know. Uh, did, did and any and anything leaping out? No, not really. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I'll maybe but I'll read it. Maybe you I'll should read it. I should read it just because you know I think it's about time I did some actual work. Yes. God damn it, um, John. But PJ, what the hell are we looking at this issue? Okay. Episode. So Detective Comics One Million, and it starts straight away with the title and credits. So I'm just just going to jump into those. It's called The Bug That Ate Tomorrow. It's written by current Comicsgate writer Chuck Dixon. Oh God, really? Yeah. Penciled by Greg Land, inked Ugh. by Drew Garachi. <laughs> Coloured by Gloria Vasquez, separated by Android, lettered by John Costanza, associate editor is Darren Vincenzo, and the editor was Scott Peterson, Batman created by Bob Kane, with Bill Finger. That's not in this book, but, you know, DC well, it these days, I'm adding it too. Well, PJ, can I, can I actually just say that from the way the text is laid out in this box, it does kind of suggest that Android Batman was created by Bob Kane. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and that could be true. Maybe Bob Finger had nothing to do with creating Android <laughs> Batman. Um, oh, by the way, I recommend there's a... I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there's a really good documentary out there about Bill Finger's um, involvement in the creation of Batman and the fight to get his credit added to the created by. Um, I, I, I watched it on, on a plane a couple of years ago. Oh. And I cannot I remember what it's Batman's. called. It's fairly recent, around the time Batman versus Superman came out. It's really, really good, and I highly recommend people seek it out. God, yeah, no, I can't... Yeah, sorry, ter- <laughs> terrible anecdote. I can't remember it. But yeah, I'm aware. I'm physically aware of those things. And... <laughs> um, and um, I, y- <laughs> Okay, clearly I'm just going to throw some shade here. Um, very early career Greg Land. Yes. And it's baffling to see him actually drawing. <laughs> as yeah. opposed to tracing. I know what you mean. Now, photo referencing is is a legitimate part of art. There is mm. no shame in, in referencing a photo. However, um, there are many, many, many things online pointing out that uh, Greg Land has directly you know traced in some instances or um uh copied might be might be another way of, of putting it and um you know and don't want to be too hard on that maybe he references it a bit too much however um recently uh an artist whose name completely eludes me did point out that Greg Land may have just outright copied a lot of his Aliens artwork. I saw that thread, yeah. For a Marvel tie-in. And it's now, you know, I guess legally I can't say it's one way or the other, but it is very compelling and it does suck. So, um, yeah, not a good look from Greg Land there. It's troublesome creators on this issue. Let's, because, yeah, Chuck <laughs> Chuck Dixon as well, He's he's gone on to be a big Comicsgate supporter. Um Offered to, they did a big. Some comics gator did a big Kickstarter for a comic about a woman with big tits that was purely designed to trigger the libs, oh. and Chuck Dixon offered to write it for free. So, oh well, what a what a what a very particular hero he is. Yes. Good for him. Um, did he write X Men for a while? No, that was Chuck Austin. Chuck Austin. Sorry, different Chuck. Two Chuck. Chucks. Yeah, you know, terrible, terrible run on X-Men, <laughs> but Chuck Austin's actually a fairly decent guy from what I gather. <laughs> uh, anyway, should we should we just move on to this issue, perhaps? Um, I mean, yeah, we're putting it off, because I'm, I'm going to lay my cards on the table now. This is terrible. This issue, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, well, terrible is a strong word. Uh, like, worse than the Starman tie-in? Yes. Oh, 
wow. Okay. The Starman tie-in was just a bit blah, and there were ways of doing it better, and I was like, I just just felt unnecessary. This is this is just bad, I think. Well, PJ, um, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve I'm gonna reserve my 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 uh, my judgment until the end, but um, yeah, we we shall see. Um, so we we open in the Bat Cave, and uh, we have a young Tim Drake, uh, Robin, uh, looking towards us with uh, wide eyes, um, and also the telltale signs of the our man virus on his face saying you dot 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 you're him and a black robed figure who is only partially in shot and is currently unidentifiable saying i am indeed him what i think is interesting that i had not considered here until the reading it for this episode the bat cave is in ruins this would have been at the same time as either cataclysm or no man's land I was just about to ask you ask you about that. Yeah, it would have been. I, I probably no man's land because there's obviously the whole Bat family are involved in Cataclysm, but then Batman kicks them out of Gotham. Although I don't think he really uses the Batcave in No Man's Land, so maybe it's in the middle of Cataclysm, which is an even weirder place for this to be and for Batman to even be doing any League stuff, but. I, I well, don't really know exactly where this lies, but it, it, it it's definitely during the quake period. Yeah, because the destruction we're seeing of the Batcave couldn't possibly be a result of the one million event. No. Um, but also it's weird because I think in the upcoming volume of um, JLA, was it Justice for All, um, there is a No Man's Land tie-in. I yeah, feel, we I get feel. a specific... Issue because I think at some point most DC books during the whole No Man's Land thing had like one issue that would tie into it or a one shot that would tie into it, um, and that was the JLA issue is included in Justice for All, and that's quite a nice little done in one story that we're going to get. It to is eventually. actually, yeah. Although chronologically, that's kind of um, a year away, give or take. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it now on my spreadsheet because this was November. This came out in November '98. And that particular tie-in came out in August 99. No Man's Land went on for a while. Um, mm. It was a long old story. Like, I've got trade collection of No Man's Land that collects it in five books, each one printing, like, between eight and ten issues. And even then, that's not the whole story. They just sort of cherry-picked the important ones for it. Um, so, yeah... Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, PJ, who is who is this um this robed figure, this cowled figure? It's Batman One Million. Woo! Yay! That's nice. And he is standing there, looking over the wreckage of the Batcave, and going, "Well, this is disappointing. I don't like this Batcave." Uh, uh yes. Um, he is um standing in the uh. The, the the ruins of the Batcave, and he's surrounded by uh, Tim Drake uh, and Nightwing and Alfred, uh, all of whom are kind of gazing stoically on, basically. Sorry, I'm just looking up the No Man's Land story. I'm, I'm determined to find out now if this was during No Man's Land or like in the middle of Cataclysm. It's all right. I can, I can fill for a moment. Um, 
Yeah, so um, Batman 1 million, who I assume is, that's not his kind of full name. I imagine he's just Batman to his friends. Uh, is basically uh, disheartened at the devastation to your subterranean lair, as he says. Uh, very wordy fellow in the future. And uh, he basically says, it's like seeing hallowed ground desecrated. This place where the legend was born. The legend that would spawn so many generations of justice seekers. Which is hard to say and hard to read as well. <laughs> so No Man's Land was through 1999. Um, basically the whole year of 1999 was the No Man's Land storyline. So maybe... This would have been at the same time as Cataclysm, because Cataclysm was literally just before, and March to May 98 Cataclysm, so between Cataclysm and No Man's Land? I don't know. It's during that period. Yeah, it's right at the tail end of 98, so yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Robin and Nightwing go, oh, we're not happy about this either, and Alfred says, I don't like this, Batman. Yeah, and Nightwing's like, uh, you know, don't grab the shotgun yet, Alfred. This guy's okay. Which, of course, the obvious inference being that the whole reason he's here is that he's had an interaction with Nightwing. Yeah, presumably in one of the Batman 1 million books. Maybe Nightwing 1 million. I assume that was around as well. Or even Robin 1 million. Although, of course, uh, Nightwing has popped up um, in DC 1 million, has he not? Uh, Yeah, in a scene in issue 1, he was taking out some thugs in Gotham while talking to Oracle. Yeah, and he's going to... Does he pop up again? I can't when... remember. Yeah, anyway, so he's having a busy time. We're all having a busy time at the moment. Um. Yeah, and uh, basically Batman 1 million, who... <laughs> I don't know, should... do we keep calling him Batman 1 million or Batman of the future or... No, because Batman of the future is, is Terry McGuinness, Batman Beyond. Well, is he Batman Beyond? How many names does he need, PJ? Well, the cartoon was called Batman of the Future over here in the UK because we don't understand the word beyond. I still don't, to be honest. Our poor backwards <laughs> peasant brains can't cope with it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so apparently uh, Batman 1 million asks for Tim Drake's help because he knows he's good with artificial intelligence, apparently. Yeah, yeah. And Batman says, well... Your computers are a lot more primitive than I thought they would be. And this is where Robin said, well, yeah, but a lot of stuff was destroyed by the quake. So, cataclysm. But we can still access the craze. And Batman rightfully says, craze? And Robin says, oh, that's four supercomputers encased in a steel cage under the floor here. They hold over 10,000 gigabytes squared. And Batman says, is that all? Um, PJ, when did the concept of the Cray supercomputers kind of enter Batman canon because it's, it's such a weird, oddly specific thing. I don't. And it, get, it gets referenced a lot. I do not remember that. I don't I don't think I ever paid attention to that part of it, if I'm being honest. It's such a specific thing that mm. it, does, it does make me think that a creator at some point actually read something, like read a, an article of popular science or something, or something about... It's like... Um, I don't know, it, it kind of feels like uh, like they're running Apple Macs or something. You mm. know what I mean? Like they're using like a very particular real-world brand uh, because I don't think if you were cre- naming a supercomputer from scratch, you'd refer to it in a comic as a Cray. Maybe. I 
I don't really know. And if I'm being honest, I'm not very interested. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love Batman. I love yeah. some of the Batman comics of the 90s. I'm actually a big fan of all the Cataclysm and No Man's Land stuff. I love Nightfall, Contagion, Legacy. Those are great as well. But yeah, I don't really care about the computer. <laughs> well, here's an interesting thing, though, because Batman of... Uh, no, Batman of... No, Batman 1 million. Um, Batman of 1 million. Batman of the million. Uh, is unimpressed at the uh, memory capacity of of these computers. He's he's a bit of a dick about it, to be honest, because it'd be like going back to, well, it'd be like going back to 1998 when this film came, when this book came out and complaining that, you know, everything was stored on floppy floppy disks or something. But his, apparently his suit has 10 times that processing power. So he touches the computers and with his incredible future tech, seemingly generates like a three-dimensional holographic computer, which is, I'm guessing, uh, uh, well, he's augmenting the back computers. So I guess my question is, PJ, going forward, did he take that technology back with him when he left? Or 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 do or does the backed cave now have, for all time, a 256th century level computer or something in the I basement. Don't, I don't think it does because he sort of creates it out, doesn't he? Yeah, there's sort of like a hologram computer now hovering near the back computer and we don't I don't think we see that again really. So I'm going to assume it's not something they're allowed to keep. Um but yeah, so uh Tim is is impressed at this holographic computer uh which uh you know kind of Alfred uh, observes and Nightwing says that uh well, I'm glad he's impressed because I had a different interaction with Batman of One Million, because uh, he challenged me to a trial by combat. <laughs> yeah, and Alfred says, perfectly medieval, and uh, Nightwing points out, well, we are closer to those days of old than to his century, and I think I'd rather have seen that issue than this one. <laughs> yeah. I reckon that was probably Nightwing One Million. I don't I don't know if someone wants to point me there. Uh, you don't know, and, and, but, and like the craze, you don't necessarily care. No, I do care, and it leads me on oh, to you the do point care. here. Here's something. Uh, I would really like to see that fight because I think Dick Grayson would stand, would last longer against Batman 1 million than Bruce did. Because here's my thing I reckon Dick in a straight fight can take Bruce. Interesting. I think we've seen it. If you read, uh, if you read Knights, uh, the whole Nightfall saga, he basically kicks Azrael's ass close enough to. Um, more, and does a better job of it than Bruce is able to. And then in the Bruce Wayne murderer trade, there is an actual fight between Nightwing and Batman in which Nightwing seems to have the upper hand. I think Dick is actually a slightly better fighter than than Bruce. That's just my opinion, and I'm going to get in trouble for it. But that's where I am. You know what? I, I'm 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 going to take the coward's option because I I have no I have no opinion at all. Like I I, I I'm not going to even touch that one. Um, but Tim is, I think, has a greater degree, not, not, not Tim, sorry, uh, Dick Grayson. I think he has a, a greater degree of flexibility yes. than Bruce ever will. I think both mentally and physically. Yeah. He's he's adaptable. Um, and I would say I do very much enjoy Morrison's Batman and uh, Robin run with um, Dick as Batman and uh, Damien as Robin. I think they are a very fun pairing, the mm. two of them. And a slightly lighter Batman is 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 actually quite welcome. I like it, but I prefer Dick as Nightwing. 
I like mm. him having his own thing and and yeah. He forged I'm, I'm, his own identity, basically. I'm also a big fan of the, this Nightwing costume that we're seeing in this book as well, where just like the black onesie with the bit of blue across the top of it. I, I really like it. Oh, it's so elegant. It's really good. Um, oh, there's and a complete side, uh, complete tangent. But there's a moment in Batman Incorporated, which was towards the tail end of Morrison's run on Batman, and it, it was getting a little messy at that point. But there's still some good points in it. But New 52 happened mm. halfway through the story and it had to have a note, an editorial note in it to say New 52 has happened. We're kind of taking a loose approach to continuity here just to finish this story. <laughs> it, it's messy. It's messy, PJ. But everybody's costumes changed between issues. Right. And basically Nightwing and Tim both had their god-awful New 52 costumes all of a sudden. And it was really messy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, PJ, what's Batman 1 million rabbiting on about? Oh, he's basically impressing Tim by saying, hey, son's a computer. Yay. Oh, also it's... uh it created the Owlman virus that threatens your world and mine, and it's Superman's greatest enemy in the future. Yeah. Um, do you feel this is maybe yet another scene in this trade where people are telling us yes. about Solaris? Okay. Yep. Yeah, without ever actually showing us Sol- Solaris being villainous. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's just oh Solaris, is, and and we again this is like the third or fourth time we've been told about it, and we know we get it. Solaris is a bad thing. He's the big sun computer. He's Superman's greatest enemy. Stop telling me and actually have it do something. We've seen it for one panel. Yeah, and as a continuation of kind of telling rather than showing, they continue to go on about how dangerous the Hourman virus is because. It's both biological and a computer virus. It spreads like a plague and it's turning people into dangerous psychopaths. However, there are four people in this room. Nobody is psychopathic. Yeah. Even though they've clearly all got the virus. Yeah. And I'm I'm not saying that like members of a bat family wouldn't have incredible self-control, but they don't feel like there's any stakes to them all being infected. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And, Batman says, you know, we've got to find the cure or human civilization is going to be erased. And then Robin just says, but won't the cave's computers be affected? And Batman says, I've done what I can, but your equipment's real primitive. Uh, Yeah, and um, it's kind of like a lot of weird exposition, really, because I'm assuming this issue was kind of meant to be filling you in, if you were a collector, on everything you hadn't read in all the other books. Um, because yeah, basically Tim goes, well, where's where's our Batman? And Nightwing's like, well, he's in the future, and he's on the planet Pluto. Um, and yeah, it just kind of you know, apropos of nothing, it doesn't really mean anything or add much. Failing to mention that he's only there because Batman One Million sucked his soul out and sent it to the future with a device. Yes. And uh, so, but but suddenly Batman One Million is like. I don't even know how to pronounce this word, PJ. He says, where is the... Situate? 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 Um, 
I'm sorry, um, anyone listening, particularly our American listeners, if we're if we're mispronouncing a, a yeah. perfectly normal word there. We're just we're very we're very rural here. <laughs> um, it it looks like someone's combined the words science and situate, so I've gone with situate. Yeah. I'm going to say skituate because I want to be di- <laughs> I want to be different, uh, but apparently uh, the skituate section is just north of Midtown, and apparently the madness of the Owlman virus. So suddenly, suddenly out of nowhere, stakes um, is just really centred there, and we see, um, you know, big kind of rioting rioting crowds wielding pitchforks and flaming torches and standing above them is Firefly, a uh, Batman villain who obviously has a flamethrower and wings. And, uh, yeah, he's just screaming about burning it all down. So that's fun. Yeah. And then, basically, Batman, Nightwing, and Robin are all like, oh, we've got we to gotta take him down. And so Robin says, well, look, Nightwing and I can handle him. It's just Firefly. Not a problem. You deal with the Hourman virus, and Batman's like, "No, conveniently, I can be in more than one place at one time. I can create an avatar that is also me, and will stay here and do the computer things while I come with you and punch Firefly." And Nightwing says, "Hey, I've seen him do this before." And I, ri- what? <laughs> he's he, he's got an avatar, PJ. He's got wild wild future tech. Um. So they divide and conquer, and one of the Batman one—I guess Batman two million—is left at the. <laughs> it's Batman thing. one million and one. Uh, thank you. No, actually, sorry, PJ. It's Batman five hundred thousand uh, is left <laughs> in the Batcave with Alfred. Goes to work on his holographic computer. Um, Alfred offers to help, but of course he doesn't need his help. Uh, but he conveniently asks how he's trying to do the thing he's doing so that we can have a bit more kind of exposition, really. Yeah, and so let's just try and run through this quickly. Batman <laughs> is, I'm attacking it indirectly, can't decrypt the nanites, uh, I'm going to estimate how long it would take to defeat the Man virus with your technology, it's not good, your machines are rubbish, they can't do it, only one problem at a time. Only a solar computer from my era would be able to fight Solaris um yeah so he's he he generates even more holographic computers um he, he just goes on and on and on um Alfred get... literally says I don't understand any of this uh, flipping the page uh, we get a big splash of a future I guess kind of like massive spaceships kind of battling um, battling Solaris uh, and yet more Solaris is real bad and he fought a lot of people and yes we we bloody know <laughs> and um, then yeah Alfred says Alfred... so you can't fix it and Batman says nope we only have one hope in order to destroy Solaris we will have to create Solaris <sighs> um, th- the end to be continued in JLA 1 million. That last panel is the only reason this issue has been included in this trade. <laughs> yes. Literally the moment where Batman 1 million says, we need to create Solaris. Yes. And we didn't need it. They no. could have put that on one of their recap pages. Because they I'm could have... fairly certain that's kind of covered 
in the next two upcoming issues anyway. Yeah. I don't think this is necessary. I, and I, I understand have... why we only get like four pages of the Green Lantern story, but they had to reprint all of that turgid crap. <laughs> I have to assume, PJ, that this issue then continued in its own right. And we, we probably had Bat- the other Batman 500,000, Nightwing and Robin just beating up Firefly. I have to assume that this is just arbitrarily cut at this I'd have, point. I'd have rather seen that. I mean, it's bad, I think, that whole story. I don't... I'm guessing what happened was Morrison said to Chuck Dixon, here's what you need to do with your story. And Dixon wasn't up to the task of doing it in a way that worked well? I feel that this is... This is one of the it's one of the worst types of comics in that it isn't necessarily terribly written. It isn't necessarily terribly illustrated. It's just that it's all in service of nothing. Yeah. And I don't even mean like how is this tying into the main storyline? How is this contributing to DC 1 million? It's just literally like there's no official. It's just such a waste of time. Like if I'd paid money to buy this issue, I would be twenty-two pages poorer. <laughs> where it's basically just like, I mean, what, what's the thing about like um, script writing? Everything is about efficiency. Mm. You know, it's kind of like if you're making a movie, then every minute of screen time is money. You know, if you're if you're writing a comic, if you're paying an illustrator, if you're doing it like on an indie level in particular. Every page is money you have to find, or every panel is money you have to find. And I'm just saying that, like, if a single panel is not driving the story forward in some way, why is it included? And I feel this is just like 18 pages of that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's, you know, it's all exposition aside from one panel of Firefly. I like the line Nightwing has about. You know they're they're closer to medieval times than they are to Batman One Million's time. That's quite a nice moment, but everything else is exposition and not even it doesn't even feel like particularly natural exposition. It's basically eighteen pages of Robin or Alfred going what, what? and Batman going well, and yeah, I yeah, yeah, and it's so weird as well because when the point of a big multi-title tie-in is to encourage readers to pick up comics they wouldn't normally buy and to maybe cause cross-pollination and inspire them to follow new heroes and spend more money. Why have an issue which is nothing but exposition about things that are happening in other books? Mm. I thought the point was is that you're meant to go Ooh, I'm intrigued and perplexed. I'm going to go pick up the other book. Yeah. Yeah. And also, as we've said, it does the thing with Solaris again, where Solaris is reduced to exposition. And I get that there are ways of having bad guys who are talked about in tones that make you think, oh, God, when this guy turns up, this is going to be amazing because they're really terrible and everything. But that's not what they're doing here. They're just literally spelling everything about Solaris out for us and not letting us find out for ourselves they're not teasing a mysterious villain 
they're just pointlessly telling us and we haven't seen Solaris do anything of note yet. I don't know I, I I don't know who my kind of like disappointment is really meant to be kind of angled towards. Like is it is it like am I disappointed in the editorial decisions that assembled this trade paperback? You know, like you know, why include this? Because it's so inconsequential. Or am I kind of am I annoyed or disappointed that this comic was ever actually kind of written and, and, and produced in the first place because it contributes nothing. And again, like I probably would never have picked up this book on its own anyway, but like I can only assume that if you were actually a collector and a fan of, sorry, was this detective comics? Yes. Yeah. I'd probably be quite disappointed, disappointed with this issue. I'd be thinking, yeah. well, when is my normal service going to resume? Because this is pointless. Especially since we're in the middle of, cataclysm no man's land stuff you know that's a a huge ongoing deal for the batman books yeah and then it's suddenly interrupted for this now to give the creative team some the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. given that we've we've discovered that morrison plotted every single issue every single tie-in and then it was handed over to the different creative teams. And this was not popular in every circle. Were the creative team perhaps given a bit of a, a rough hand in that they had to hit certain beaks? Probably. Kind of like the same excuse we made for Scarman, really. Yeah, I reckon they probably did. Um <sighs> You know, without knowing what they were given by Morrison, it's hard to know if there was a better way of doing it. Maybe it was a form of protest, you know. They maybe like Dan Jurgens, they didn't like being told what they had to do, so they phoned it in as much as they could. You know, Jurgens quit. These guys went, Well, I'm not quitting, but I'm also not going to put my best work in. I well, yeah, I do wonder if like we're running up against the limits of, of their creativity, perhaps. Like, I think, yeah, the writing is 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 clunky. I, I personally don't feel it's quite as clunky as Scarman. No, but no. I, I feel it's more pointless. It's, I think it's endemic of this whole book as well. Look, I'm we're we're going to cover the the one more page of the trade now, which is the next. This is sort of the recap. I think we should just go through this a paragraph at a time because sure, sure, yeah. we've got points to make about it, and it ties into <laughs> what we've been saying with Detective Comics. So it opens with the battle for the future is now waged on two fronts. While the 853rd century Dark Knight raced to find a cure for the maddening Hourman virus. Vandal Savage's plans for Atomic Armageddon moved forward at a frightening pace. The salvo of Rocket Red warsuits launched by Savage, each with a helpless Titan trapped inside, blazed towards cities paralysed by the Nanite Malady. Basically telling us what we've read in the last two issues there. Fair enough. Uh, yes, although it's a very action-packed paragraph. Uh, it kind of makes me think that maybe something more action-packed is happening off-page. Yes. Maybe it would have been nice to see some of that stuff. Well, that's it. Because the very next paragraph says, but the Hourman virus was exactly what defeated the immortal conqueror. We're not even going to get to see Vandal <laughs> Savage's defeat? What? So, 
Next paragraph, here we go. Savage's first rocket red, which left Montevideo a smoking crater, was meant to rain fallout on Washington, D.C., with the Hourman virus fouling the warsuit's guidance computer, the aquatic hero Tempest bailed out unconscious over the Atlantic Ocean. Washington was saved, though a million Uruguayan peasant citizens perished. Now, that's kind of reiterating what we've already seen, to some extent. Like, that doesn't add a lot, though I assume that maybe oh god i'm sorry probably, probably people listening are probably screaming in, in, into their podcast provider right now but i don't know if some events would have happened did tempest have his own title at the time or no but i presume he would have been in uh aquaman one million yeah or maybe there was a titans one million that he was in or something but this is dc one million issue two we haven't seen tempest's apparent death dc one million two just has arsenal saying you killed a garth now i'm angry and now we don't see him escaping death either that's also happened off panel and this all feels like quite important information for the ongoing story that we should have seen Mm. um so the next one if not for the efforts of heroes from two distant eras three more cities would have known savage's timeless wrath the Superman from 85271 AD used his astounding force vision to free Arsenal and contain a rocket red from laying waste to Metropolis. Again, I feel like we should have seen that. Yes, I agree. Supergirl was liberated from her warsuit aimed at incinerating Brussels by the 853rd century Wonder Woman. And Singapore was spared nuclear devastation by Impulse and the future Flash John Fox, whose combined powers disarmed the rocket red and freed fellow super speedster Jesse Quick. So our big cliffhanger from DC 1 million issue 2, we don't actually get to see the resolution to. We just get told about it. Now, on the one hand, I think a lot of the blame can be laid at the decisions that were made when collecting this trade. Yes, paperback. I agree. It is, however, kind of baffling that they made the decision to include those Batman excerpts but not any of that. Yeah. You know, I think if the trade-off was a thicker trade paperback that maybe felt less like a JLA tie-in, because mine is called, you know, JLA 1 million. Yours is not, if yeah. I understand it correctly, PJ. Just called DC 1 million. Um, I would have personally wouldn't have minded if a few Titan books, uh, if, a, if a Supergirl issue was included in this, yep. you know, if it felt less like JLA. On the other hand, it's kind of weird that the central DC 1 million book didn't contain more of the core action that defined the series. That's exactly my thinking on it. I think if you're going to have key moments and cliffhangers in the main book, you need to resolve those in the main book. You cannot assume people are going to pick up every other book. If someone was only picking up the four issues of DC 1 million, just to say, oh, I've heard about this event, I don't want to, I'm not interested in all the side stuff, but I'll read the main thing, see what's going on, they'd be so confused. Yes, insanely confused. And we've talked about different crossovers, you know, over the course of doing this recap and um, the different approaches they've taken. You know, do you go for a House of M, for example, which has a very you know, all the core action takes place over the six or eight page miniseries mm. when there's tie-ins. Um, but this idea that, like, to get the whole picture, you need to kind of grab... I guess DC were hoping you would pick up every single DC 1 million tie-in. 
to try and get the story. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it works. No, no, it doesn't. I think you mentioned House of M. I'd say Civil War as well, um, and maybe Siege. That so some of the early noughties um, mm. Marvel ones. I think are the ones that actually do it best. Because you do get a full story if you just read the main series. House of M, if you read the tie-ins, you'll find out more about how the heroes' lives have changed in this parallel reality. But it's not core to the main series. Great. Yeah. Civil War, you know, basically the main story is told in the series. There's mention of events and fights that happen in between which are covered in yeah. the tie-in books but they're not essential to understanding the story and it's just like oh now i have seen that fight that they have talked about cool but what is yeah sorry pj yeah but this is as you say it's main story beats are happening in tie-in issues and i do you know did anyone buy every single dc book that month i don't know it was, and, you know, the big speculator time, collectors buying books they thought would be valuable, so maybe someone did, thinking their DC 1 million full collection would be worth 1 million bucks. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and, and, and like in what order would you read them in? I'm sure there is a, a recommended or preferred reading list, but it's not curated. It's not kind of, you know, you can't guide someone through a story in the same way you could if you had a tighter, more coherent core, you know, title. Hmm. Exactly. Uh, uh, and, and it's interesting because, of course, the next collected issue in this trade is the JLA 1 million tie-in, which actually feels more like an actual part of the story. I, I think I actually... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think the next next issue could be could be one of the highlights of this yes. run. My Going back to what I said at the start, it's like... I don't. I don't think it was intentional, and maybe it was a bit of a failed experiment. But I'm always left with the impression that I'm missing something. Yeah. In this book, it always feels like there's something happening off page, uh, and thus, kind of every scene is kind of saddled with a lot of exposition or a lot of dialogue, which has to refer to things the reader isn't privy to. I guess to kind of for the story to make sense. Yeah, I I agree, and it's it's a shame because it is a very interesting idea. There is a lot of really good stuff in this book. Mm. It just doesn't really hold together as a story, the way it's I, presented here. I very much admire the ambition. I I, I think um, you know they tried something, and I think that should be kind of applauded. But I think it may be. Great ideas. The execution is a little wobbly, and I think it could have done with more of a some different editorial decisions where you you could have said, "Well, look, let's devote some of that energy down different channels." Yeah, you know, did we need? And you know, Morrison, you know, with all fairness, it's like, did they need to individually plot fifty eight titles? Yeah, or, or however many it was. You know, could could that could their time have been better served with it being just put into writing? a longer uh, kind of core title, you know, containing more of the action there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I think, um, I think two of the biggest kind of storytelling issues, problems, if you will, are the fact that our two major threats, which are Solaris on one hand and the hour man virus on the other. I, I guess there's a third threat, which is Vandal Savage, I suppose, but it's a fact that, I never see any of the real world consequences or implications of those two things. Yeah. 
we never seem to get a decent scene with Solaris kind of explaining why they are so dangerous and why they are apparently the major villain of this series. And two, the Hourman virus is a very underutilized concept. And Morrison themselves does it so much better in what, like a year and change? In like a, a year and a half later when they're doing World War Three. Yep. Yep. The idea of a, an infection or a virus or something which is making people become violent and aggressive and mad. But he, uh, here's the thing. Yeah. He's already seeded World War Three. I know he sort of seeded, at least seeded Our Man during Rock of Ages, but he also seeded World War Three there. And World War Three continues to be seeded. Mm. You know, Our Man had that appearance in Rock of Ages, which was key also to the Rock of Ages plot. And then a little teaser of what was coming up in DC 1 million. And then that's about it. So then when you do get to it, suddenly it's, oh, we have to cram a lot in as well. Yeah, I think I think it kind of, that's kind of what DC 1 million kind of feels like. Like uh, we've, we're building to this big, this big crisis point, but we need to kind of shoehorn another seemingly big crisis in at the same time. Like it's really baffling to me why there would be two major storylines that revolve around a virus that makes you more aggressive mm. like that that's mad to me um and and i think one does it very well and i think the other the other doesn't yeah yep i agree i agree and that this page just ends with you know vandal savage is still at large and the arrow man virus is continuing to rage across the planet that's the um and i guess another weird thing is that like i think some of the ideas we're kind of seeing in the pages of DC 1 million, you know, the idea of um, Superman 1 million, the idea that Superman Prime has been living in the sun for millennia, that, um, you know, but Solaris, indeed, just the entire concept of Solaris, they're clearly very, very, very important to Morrison's personal hmm. Superman mythology because... I mean, you talk about Solaris done well. Let's look at All-Star Superman. Yes. Um, it's kind of wild to me that there's such a thematic um, mythological link between All-Star Superman and DC 1 million. You know, books that arguably aren't even in the same canon. Uh, and one which is kind of a, a you know, m mediocre to all right at best. And one which is kind of seen as one of the greatest superhero comics of the last kind of 30 years. It's, it's, it's insane to me. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's all very strange. But I don't know, maybe DC 1 million in the format it was released was just Morrison biting off a little more than they could chew at that particular point in time. And I do wonder if Morrison's own personal ideas for super, the Superman mythology... You know, the idea that kind of try, trying to create the ultimate enemy of Superman and having it being an evil son is the kind of, like, mythology that Morrison kind of loves, I, I would speculate. And I wonder if their own personal feelings about what this meant to them got more in the way of actually making the story as coherent as it could be. Yeah. Just my personal view. I'm, I'm very much putting words and actions into the head of someone who's not here to defend themselves. But <laughs> that's kind of how that's that's my theory, if I'm honest. No, it, it makes sense to me. And yeah, I think I think we're in complete agreement on this. So, I mean, PJ, like, 
do you have any? I mean, what are your thoughts as as a whole, really? I mean, I know we've just been t- touching on it, but is, is there any more to kind of add about about this issue? No, not really. I it's rubbish. I don't like it, but <laughs> you know what can you do? I said I think it's it's boring and a little pointless, and I yeah. think that's maybe the worst sin a comic can commit, really. Yeah, and you know we've read it now and we have talked about it now, so we're done. <laughs> hey, um, in a in a in a in a flip flopping of the format, PJ, uh, should we read some fan mail? Let's do it. I like fan mail. Unless they're mean to me, and then I keep calling it fan mail, and again, that's very—I feel that's very insulting to the listeners. Let's call it friend mail. They're our friend mail. Yeah, no, you see, they're they're people in their own right, so they're not defined by their fandom of us. Um, They're listening to our podcast because they also enjoy Grant Morrison's JLA, and we are all in agreement about that, and therefore, they're just our peers. Oh yes, yeah, no, that's really good, PJ. Maybe we're all fans. We're not. We're just the the ones with the microphones. Yes, we. We're the ones with an unwarranted soapbox, an unearned, undeserved <laughs> that no one asked for. <laughs> <laughs> but God damn it, you're going to listen to it. Um, but no, we've had it. We've had um, had an awesome uh, email from uh, a new listener. Well, I say new, new to us, but you know has has been listening anyway. I'm sorry. Hello to uh, Nils Almstrom, who is uh, writing from Sweden, which is very cool. So that's hello. awesome. I, that's that's awesome to me that there are people around the world listening to us. I love that. Thank you so much for writing, Nils. That's brilliant. This the global reach we suddenly have. I mean, and and this is incredibly gratifying to PJ and I because yeah, to have anybody write in is is just just an absolute delight. So yeah, thank you. Um, but yes, yeah, so Nils writes. Uh, Hi, uh, I've um, I have I've really enjoyed the JLA cast. Morrison's run is one of the best things DC has published, and it's nice to see it covered extensively. So, I think uh, Nils is good people. I think I think we can tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, two points, and one's a, a kind of um, a bit of a rebuttal to to my to my vendetta. Yeah. Is, um, <laughs> One thing I do have to point out is about Bendis not innovating. There is an exception to this. When he wrote Daredevil, Matt Murdock's secret identity was leaked. This led to some very interesting things and changed the status quo for years. Bendis's best work, in my opinion. I am going to agree with Nils. I love Bendis's Daredevil. I cannot believe I haven't brought it up before when we've talked about Bendis. Um, but... Yeah, it was a superb run on that book. I believe Alex Maleev was the artist for most of it. And it did some really interesting things with the book and with the character. And it sort of then still got built on by like the two or three creative teams that came after it. So, yeah, I agree. Big fan of Bendis' Daredevil. Yes, I, I think um, I... Yes, I probably have to make a bit of a concession here that... Um, Yes, I I haven't actually read Bendis's run on Daredevil, and maybe that's why I'm so ignorant and and, and ill-informed in my opinions. Um, but culturally, and, and what I, I'm kind of aware of and have have absorbed about that series, I know how well regarded it is, and I know how much it did for the character. So yes, I will I will freely acknowledge that. Yes, I I think that that was quite a significant move. Um. Now, PJ, this does kind of tie into a theory of mine that Bendis is generally better on solo character titles than yeah. he is on a team book. 
Yeah, I think I'm not as down on Bendis as you are. <laughs> we'll just say that up front. Um, I really like certainly the earlier days of Ultimate Spider-Man. I think I liked his entire run on Ultimate Spider-Man, but its real high point was the launch. Mm. The first 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 couple of years on it, I think, are, are really, really good stuff. Uh, especially the issue where he just reveals to Mary Jane his secret yes. identity. Because it felt real. At that point, it felt like Bendis was writing real teenage characters, and I, I think he had a really good ear for dialogue back then. I feel like he Bendis, for me, ended up becoming sort of one of those snakes that swallows its own tail, where he was known for dialogue and how good it was, so he sort of pushes it a bit further, and then it almost becomes, a, in certain books, a parody of itself later on. Um, but yeah, I loved his Ultimate Spider-Man run. His Daredevil run is 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 superb. We mentioned House of M being a crossover that sort of gets it right earlier. I still hold it up. I think House of M is a great book, and he wrote that. I I enjoyed House of M. Yeah, I definitely did, and uh, I think um, I've and also on an art front, I'm always personally delighted when Olivia Capel. Yeah, is uh, is drawing a book. I think he's one of my favourite yeah. artists operating today. And the same with Siege, which was his later crossover that sort of brought Steve Rogers back to the forefront. And has there's one moment in Siege I will remember forever because this was when Norman Osborn was the Iron Patriot. And yeah, all right, some of that Dark Avengers stuff I didn't enjoy so much when Bendis was doing that. But the moment when I think it's the end of issue two of Siege when someone shouts Osborne's name from off, off panel, Osborne looks up and just reflected in his helmet, you can see Captain America's shield flying towards his head. It's a beautiful moment, and I think Bendis is actually really good at writing those small moments that allow an artist to shine. I feel like he's someone who works very well with his artists. Yes, I, I think... Um... He did do that one issue of New Avengers, which was nothing but splash pages. Yeah. Uh, so definitely letting the art shine. I think a little bit more story wouldn't have gone amiss. Yeah, I agree with that, that one on that issue. Definitely. I, that, no, that's a low blow of me. I'm being a little. I'm being a little salty there. I think. I think. Um, New Avengers probably showcases everything good and bad about Avengers uh, about uh, Bendis's writing. Because the series really needed uh, a revamp at that point. Yeah. And I and I know Bendis's like new team was unconventional, but it was the jolts of energy the series needed. I really liked New Avengers when it started. I feel like Civil War was huge. And but I feel like Civil War sort almost derailed a couple of books, and I feel like Bendis's Avengers books were ones that that it had an impact and not necessarily a good one on them. That's where for me he started going downhill a little bit. I think I think he absolutely should not have been writing seventeen titles a month. Yeah, you know because it was out. His output was outrageous and, and kind of I mean kind of commendable. But I think also if you're writing that much content a month, I think something is going to suffer. Yes. And I think some of the the bad behavior started coming to the surface, which was the fact that there was very little variation in dialogue between people. You know, he, Bendis has a particular style, uh, which is which I think is good. And I think it's why I prefer it more on a solo book. I think his Ultimate Spider-Man work, particularly in the early days, was fantastic. Mm. And he's obviously carved a bit of a niche for himself for writing kind of like urban 
grittier kind of um, characters and scenes. But I think um, towards the end of new of New Avengers, it was the um, just the scenes and scenes of people talking, yes, and nothing happening. Like I get that the dialogue was a bit more realistic, but like. God, it, it it seemed like money was burning on the page. Like, why is this an eight-issue miniseries? It could have been told in two issues. You know what I mean? Like, it just dragged on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah, so I think if you put Bendis on a solo book, he can do some really good stuff with it. And let's not forget, of course, he also created both Miles Morales and Riri Williams, who are both now appearing in movies. So Yes, I mean, we can't, again, can't understate that. And I think um, here's just me being one you know, salty guy from the West Country. I think, you know, Bendis's impact and on on the culture is is undeniable. And, you know, we're all, you know, kind of living in, in the echoes of that. I mean, the Ultimate line wouldn't have survived, I feel, if mm. Ultimate Spider-Man hadn't been such a flagship title. Um, For better or worse, let's be honest, sort of the other than Spider-Man, the other Ultimate books really went off the boil <laughs> towards yes, the end. Yes, pretty quickly, yeah. But again, I think it was one of the issues with Ultimate. I think um, Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, the dialogue and the, and the wonderful characterization could shine because Bendis had this kind of almost like a crib sheet to fall back on. Mm. You had an entire back catalogue of Marvel character of, of Spider-Man enemies that he could work through to like revamp all these old beats in a way. Yeah, he had like a kind of um, a safety net. To allow his characterization to start to to kind of shine, um, yeah, I just I, I personally feel that like plotting and concept isn't necessarily his kind of strong suit, or maybe um, he was pushing himself a bit too much. Yeah, I think it, it depends how many books a month he's writing, and I think it depends on you know if he's got a good hook, which he did for Daredevil, then he can do really good stuff with it. If he's trying to have some fun, which he did on... I can't remember what the title was called, but he did a six-issue Batman mini when he first moved to DC that was just fun. It was really mm. fun, and I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with that book. Um, then, yeah, he can do good stuff. I think if he's not sure, if he doesn't have that initial hook, or he's working with too many characters, or he's writing too many books at once, then it can suffer. Definitely. Mm. And I think he stayed on some books too. Like, I'd say Avengers definitely stayed on too long. And I think by the end, he'd sort of maybe run out of ideas there. I do th- I do think it's funny you brought up Siege because I thought his... his um, And Dark Avengers and Siege and everything he was doing with, with Norman Osborn always felt like a bit of an audition to DC. Mm. Like, I always felt like he was going like, look, I can write Lex Luthor. I always felt it was inevitable that he was going to make the leap and he'd be writing JLA at some point, which was a bit of a personal fear of mine because I I wasn't sure if I was ever really ready off the back of the Morrison run to see the JLA talk like Bendis characters. <laughs> I feel like what, what little of the Superman books he did I've read, he does write Superman as Superman. Clark Kent speaks like a Bendis character, but Superman spoke like Superman and that was fine. Hmm. Again, I haven't read them, so I really, I don't have, you know, please, everyone, everything I'm saying, it is the ill-informed, unsupported opinion of somebody with a microphone. Like, (laughs) you know, please, if you love Bendis' work, do enjoy it. It's not for me to say it isn't good or not. It's just 
you know, this is just something I I I like to grind an axe about occasionally. You know, we're we're recording a podcast where we're talking about comics we love, but as you've heard this episode within that, we're going to be critiquing stuff as well, and it's just our opinions coming out that's all it is it's our opinions and you can agree or disagree with them that is entirely your prerogative and you know i'm very glad nils has raised bendis's daredevil run there because i i i feel i i should have mentioned it earlier on but again you know nils if bendis works for you then great that's that's genuinely brilliant and no it's it's awesome because i think we've defended his honor a little bit yeah definitely and Nils does have one other question, which is, he says, I have a question. Will you cover any other comic book runs in the future? Which is a hotly debated topic. Uh, yes, we will. We, we, you know, we know that Morrison's run on JLA, we're, we're getting into the second half. We're probably closer to the end than the beginning at this point, And it's going to end. Morrison's run ends. That's just that's just how it goes. Yes, we do have ideas for other things we can look at after that. Um, I think a couple of things we've teased that we've discussed. You know, we want to look at the JLA Avengers crossover at some point, but maybe that means before that we have to look at Busick's run on Avengers, which we also both love. Yeah, I, I do like the idea of doing like a bit of um, a rotating kind of greatest hits sort of thing for a while like maybe we'll do like some of these big events that happened around this time and what they meant for dc continuity and stuff or or maybe we find some other kind of morrison uh titles that Mm. that had connections to maybe we should do final crisis pj do we have to (laughs) we have talked about doing death of superman from beginning to end um, that could be interesting, you know, because I don't think you've read all of it, have you? No, I haven't. No, in fact, I'm actually coming across as very um, poorly read in this issue because <laughs> in this episode, because yes, no, I ha- I've never actually read it. I I've absorbed things through cultural osmosis, but I, no, I've, uh, I've also been tempted to suggest we do all the Batman crossovers for, of the '90s from Nightfall to No Man's Land. So <laughs> that could be interesting. That could be interesting, actually, and yeah, maybe. So maybe the thing I'm wary about is is that. I think the Busick Perez run on Avengers is is a very 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 strong contender, and it has there's a thematic resonance with you know Morrison's JLA because mm. they both came out at the same time and they both revamped flagship series, but in very different ways. And, and for me, they're also both the high points for those two teams. Yes, <laughs> I, no, I, I agree. Morrison's JLA run never beaten for me. Same with Busick's Avengers. Yeah, no, I agree absolutely, and it's funny how they're both such different books, like both such different writing styles, but immensely influential for both of us. You know, um, yeah, uh, kind of the Avengers run, which is what is what kind of made me want to write kind of superhero-y kind of stuff, mm. and the and JLA is what made me go like, oh wow, like there's a there's a weird other way of doing of doing superhero comics as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'd maybe have to change the A in our logo if we did the oh Avengers. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, but at least if we do like Superman or Batman books, they're in the JLA, so we can still be the JLA cast. This is what I was going to say, though, PJ. Branding is my concern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if, if, if we commit to doing the Busick Perez Avengers run, that's much longer than yes. Morrison's JLA run, at least twice as long. Although, I mean, fewer diversions. That is true. That is true. We could be we could be in it for a while, is what I'm saying. And yeah. could, we, could we really call ourselves the JLA cast? 
at that point. <laughs> the Jolly Long Avengers cast. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> or we do a, an Amalgam Comics themed podcast. I mean, DC versus Marvel, Amalgam, and then the two Access miniseries. It's all right there, and I wouldn't say no to that. What? What? It could be actually. It's the Judgment League Avengers cast, <laughs> yeah. which I believe is is the yeah, amalgam. Th- that's what they were called. Yeah. No. I. I mean, like, look, SEO. You know, branding. The JLA cast is here to stay. But maybe I like what you're saying, PJ. We change what the J, the L, and the A actually stand for <laughs> uh, to 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 meet whatever we're talking about that given that given week. That was actually um, so. You know, to answer your question, Nils, yes, we are going to look at other stuff after we finish this run on JLA. We just, we don't know exactly what we'll dive into next, but we've got time to figure it out, and we've got options. And you know, we enjoy talking comics together. And clearly, some of you guys enjoy listening us talk to comics together as well. So. Yes, we do. Which is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 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 future has yet to be written. We can do we can do whatever we want. Ooh, we should do we should do episode one million, PJ. Where we, where we, <laughs> <laughs> we what, what 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 are we reading in the two hundred and fifty sixth century or whatever it's called? What uh, the John and PJ of that era? What will they be called? John, uh, like with a zero in the middle of your name or something. I, I, I'd, I'd want to be uh, Saber John. Saber John. And I would be maybe like Pudge with an apostrophe between the P and the J. I like the idea that we'd be reviewing kind of like, I don't know, JLA Avengers movie part three or something <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, God, where would they be at that point? They'd be doing, um, they'd be like a Stingray movie or uh <laughs> Uh, a, a D-Man hey, movie. You know what? Stingray is one of my favourite costume designs. I love that outfit, so I'd be up for that. It's it's a hell of a good costume, actually. Although it's so weird, like all I know about Stingray is is kind of like the costume and like the uh, Marvel Encyclopedia entry. You know what I mean? Like he's for me, he is a costume. I know not the character at all. He appears briefly in the Busick run. There was also a six-part story I I know called The Crossing from the early 90s, which featured the Avengers, the Red Guard, and Alpha Flight all teaming up, uh, which guest-starred Stingray because the Avengers needed someone who could go underwater and Namor was unavailable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless. There's an awesome moment in the opening... Uh, Busick Avengers arc where they're fighting Morgana Le Fay and um, you do get a shot where I think um, Falcon and Stingray are in kind of shot at the same time which again is and kudos to Perez for kind of bringing it to life because it's just one of those wonderful daft kind of mm. moments where you realise that like their costumes are incredibly similar. Yeah. <laughs> and and they look good. They look good together, like the fish and fowl team over at Marvel. <laughs> uh PJ, is there anything left to say at this point? Uh I mean, no, I don't think so. Thanks. Thank you for your letter, Nils. That is really great. We we do love hearing from people. Write into us, please do, because sometimes we might be short on good content like we were today and your letters really help yeah <laughs> they really help us through the dark times um and it is it is just incredible to know that people are listening and enjoying it it's very it really means a lot 
Yeah, thank you so much to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast on a fortnightly basis. I don't know why you do it, but... Um, but on that note, I guess I should say uh, a massive uh, thank you to uh, Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And a big thank you and happy birthday to Elliot Red for composing and performing our theme Aww. tune, Justice. Depending on when you're listening to this. If you're listening to it in like a month and a half's time, it's not his birthday anymore. So, Oh, well, thank you, Elliot. Um, and, it, and if you enjoy uh, hearing uh, PJ and I kind of ramble about things, uh, you can find us on social media. Our details are in the description. As is our uh, our email address, if you'd like to drop us a line. Yes. Well, PJ, I think that magical time has rolled around again. I was going to say the year one million, but it's not it's not the year one million. Uh, <laughs> could you, in your own unique way, uh, see us home? Uh, no, but my avatar can. Oh, hello, I'm PJ's avatar. I'm identical to PJ and utterly pointless in every way. Bye. Bye.